Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Women did still play, of course, but the facilities were non-existent and it wasn't taken seriously. The electrical engineers, bright sparks to you, have challenged the munition workers, the great guns, to a football match. That's right, tuck it in, Tessie. After the powder, we shall be seeing a shot. Welcome to Upfront on Football Ramble Presents. I'm Flo Lloyd-Hughes. I'm Chloe Morgan. And I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. On today's show, Chelsea get revenge on Arsenal in a brutal display in the FA Cup final, which left Emma Hayes purring. Sunday was 100 years on from the FA's ban on women's football. We reflect on it and where the game finds itself today. And we also preview some intriguing games this week as attention turns to the Champions League. Chelsea again, Kerr flag has stayed down. Sam Kerr for Chelsea, little dink. What a goal! What a goal to seal the FA Cup victory. Outstanding finish by an outstanding goal scorer. Well, clean sheet was amazing. Um, London is blue. And when the third goal went in, I was simply purring. Wembley. I don't think a result many of us saw coming or a performance from Arsenal that many of us saw coming I think you know we were sat here last week doing some video clips having a chat and I think we all thought it was going to be a really tight game Uh, and I don't think anyone expected Arsenal to be absolutely blown away like they were yeah, um, is that am I, am I right I in thinking that? Fair. It was disappointing. It was really disappointing. We hyped it up so much. We look a bit week. silly, but now, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, but it was disappointing because like, it was still a show. Like Sam yeah. Kerr put on a show. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the atmosphere was there. It was obviously a big crowd, a big occasion. Mm. Obviously, off the back of you know the, the pandemic and all the effects it had, and we were thinking, okay, this is big. And on the celebration of the FA ban, and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be you know two titans going against each other, big clash, big names here, but actually. Arsenal fell apart. Um, and it so just you, but you were a bit disappointed in, in that sense because of that? Massively disappointed, yeah. I mean, Chelsea just showed, uh, stole the show. And I think we were just expecting a bigger game. I was expecting a bigger game. And I think watching it, I was expecting just bigger clashes and, and better battles. But it just ended up being one way. Chelsea just running away with it. And I just think it was so disappointing for Arsenal. I think you obviously come off the back of a really good run in the WSL. Um, and it, it just, the defence, it just, where were they? Um, is my point. Yeah, I think we were all so hyped for it, not even like in this room, but outside of it, all the media, all the fans, like such a good occasion. We were all like there, ready to go. And then just like nobody told Arsenal to 
turn up in a similar fashion and yeah really disappointing I think we did touch on it last week that there, we were a little bit concerned about that Arsenal back line and my god were they run ragged um, Jen Beattie half fit a lot of open Moy really struggled she had a really bad game yeah but like the fullbacks just left them isolated yeah, they, did, they and, did leave them for dead but oh my god yeah Jen Beattie did not look fit she no. looked like she'd been shoved some cortisone and was just she told picked to up like a knock go and, for yeah, it yeah I don't know why I'm, I I know why she started because you needed that experience alongside Little Moy but it was a huge risk yeah. and she didn't play well Little Moy looked like she was running through mud most of the game Was phys- physically wasn't matching any of the Chelsea players they were just bullied didn't see Jordan Nobbs that was a contentious point yeah. um, it was weird and I think one of the things that really surprised me was I know that since that game at the Emirates, Arsenal have sort of tweaked things a little bit and McCabe is now being part of the front three on the left-hand side and Steph Catley's playing at left wing back and that means Beth Mead's being pushed to the right of the front three. And I get that and they played well and it was exactly the same starting lineup that played against Manchester United. But at the same time, Jonas Edeval knew what worked at the Emirates and didn't go for it and the, the best bit of Arsenal's game was the 10 minutes before the end of the first half when Mead and McCabe switched and McCabe was playing on the right and Mead were playing on the left and Arsenal could have won a penalty when Aaron Cuthbert handballed it in the box. That was the best bit. That was the best bit of Arsenal's whole match and he then just resorted back to the same formation in the, in the second half that they'd been playing with for most of the game. So it didn't make sense to me that, you know, what worked at the Emirates and what worked for 10 minutes on Sunday, he did decide not to stick with it. Yeah, I was really surprised and... Um, I know Hope Powell talked on TalkSport about it being kind of unfair to blame his tactics or to say kind of he got his tactics wrong. But sitting in from where we were, that game was crying out for Jordan Nobbs for a box-to-box midfielder. Leo Someone just to take control yeah. of things because there was no control in the midfield. There was nothing. There was no like link up between defence and forwards. And um, yeah, I thought Leo Volti struggled uh, quite a bit and, and it just didn't seem like... Idavell either recognised it or wanted to change maybe something he he decided they were going to play a certain way and that was kind of it. And I do wonder how effective Jonas Idavell is as implementing a plan B. He's not really had to do that too many times so far this season. And we know that that's something Emma Hayes is really good at. She's very good at kind of reacting to what's happening in front of her in the first half and tweaking things quickly. And I'm not sure we've seen that. We didn't see it against Barcelona we didn't see it against them, uh, Chelsea, this weekend. I think, you know, Jordan Nobbs could have made a massive difference. But what we saw instead was just just put on as many forwards as possible and hopefully someone will get a goal. And that just, there was still no mid- midfield. There was nothing linking the two. So, yeah, it was an unusual kind of decision, I think. But then, you know, I'm not a football manager. What do I know? No, I think there's a lot of responsibility to be had from the players' side of things. I think, obviously, they became completely unsettled in, you know, two minutes. They've, they've just gone down a goal. And I think from then on, it just looked very, very shaky from from all the players there was no composure, no consistency there. And, you know, we're talking about Arsenal having these big games, but also a lot of the Arsenals are, you know, they're international players. They're used to sort of big occasions. So I think we're also, I was just expecting a lot more, I think. And it looked indicative of how the Arsenal game or how things were going to go when Midebar, you know, she had a great chance up front and kind of scoofed, scoofed. It was like a, it was a weird kind of semi-shot into the crowd. And I just thought, okay, well, this is just not going to be their gonna day. This is going to be their day, yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I think you've got to take. I think you've got to take responsibility for those. I think it was. It was. I. I. I do agree with you as well because I. I think Jonas Odegaard got so much wrong. But it is. It is also probably a bit concerning to see how Ars- a lot of Arsenal players, experienced players, did seem to buckle under the pressure yeah. under the lights at Wembley in front of that crowd. It just did seem like 
in the most basic cliche way that Chelsea wanted it more. Yeah, absolutely. That Chelsea were going to rise to the challenge, rise to the occasion, and their big name players like Sam Kerr and Frank Kirby. I mean, Emma Hayes said then said this in her post match. She said there was no way, regardless of jet lag, regardless of whatever, that Sam Kerr was going to leave Wembley without that trophy. And it just feels like Arsenal were not willing to match them. I don't know if it's the absence, not only of Williamson from a quality point of view, but from that motivator club point of view. But it, it felt like there was a lack of leadership on that pitch. Kim, obviously, Kim Little is the captain and she couldn't get hold and do what she normally does so well. But they were just all over the place. Yeah, but I also think Chelsea always have this swagger when they come up against Arsenal. They also generally have quite the swagger going into big games. Now, not to, you know, be a downer on Chelsea, but that game, this final kind of reminded me of, of Chelsea against Barcelona where that early goal came in and it was just a soccer punch and the whole game plan went out the window and Arsenal were just on the back foot then for the rest of the game um, and you cannot play like that against a ruthless team like Chelsea but yeah they always and I think it's that MA's mentality when she plays against Arsenal she drives that team you know just it is a mentality game I think with her and she was all about I don't want to say the mind games but I do love it the was my, it was mind games it was a hundred percent mind games and she loves it we all love it I think it's really important I wrote a piece about this I think it's really important to have this in women's football because it's entertainment at the end of the day and she knows that it is just banter like no one's taking it personally this is just the way it is and I think it's really important to have that and this whole back and forth her press conference on Friday saying that she doesn't consider Arsenal their rivals she always <laughs> considers Manchester City as the biggest games Jonas Eidevel then punching back saying I have a fear of black cats maybe if Emma Hayes saw us as a rival she would buy a thousand black cats and set them loose in training Kim Little saying in that very same press conference that she thought Emma Hayes was playing mind games I mean, the mind games work, didn't they? They work. <laughs> well, I think she follows it up. It's like not only yeah, does she exactly. about the mind games, she, but I think she that mentality, walks the walk, right? It, it's that it translates into performances on the pitch, and I think you know she was giving it, you know, Billy Big Balls, and to be honest, that's exactly what Chelsea stepped onto the pitch and they did. I mean, every time they got the ball, they were attacking Arsenal at pace, and they wanted it so much, and you could just and, tell. and you could tell as well that she talked to the players about this because Zasira Musevic, Chelsea's number two, she put. And black cat little emojis around the picture of the FA Cup trophy in the change rooms afterwards. So that that had been talked about, you know, might have been on some whiteboard, might have been a picture printed out somewhere, but they were using that to motivate them. And why not? And I think it's funny to see the two contrasting styles and how that played out for the two teams. I think it's very interesting. And also from a tactical point of view, got to give Emma Hayes a load of credit for yeah. what she did because we saw how dangerous... Beth Mead was on that left-hand side at the Emirates and well, linking up with Casey McCabe. And Chelsea could not handle her that day. Erin Cuthbert playing at right wing back for the majority of this season has been incredible. And on Sunday, she was brilliant. She just gobbled up any opportunity that came their way. It was kind of a sort of back three, back four cross with Sophie Ingle, you know, sitting in front almost as like a little sweeper just to mop up any kind of issue, any sort of mess that came their way. Because... That back three for Chelsea hasn't been great. No. But it's almost like they had the safety net of Sophie Ingle sitting in front of them so that they knew the comfort of if anything went wrong, she would clean it up and we would be all right. And I think Wrighton and Cuthbert in the wingback roles was brilliant. And then Melanie Lupoltz had a really good game. Probably one of the best games I've seen her have for Chelsea. Um, she was just like dominating the slightly further up the pitch in front of Ingle and just she's, she supplied the goal for the assist for Sam Kerr's second and yeah just very controlled very smart 
got the tactics spot on. So I think Emma Hayes does 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 deserve a lot a lot of credit for that. But a lot of people will just think, where were Arsenal? Yeah, there. But also, like, yeah, I know I was talking about the tactics, but the players do have a responsibility to react to what they're seeing on the pitch. Um, but you're right. I know we talk as well a lot about Frank Kirby and Sam Kerr, but I did think Erin uh, Cuthbert and Sophie Ingle were incredible. Um, Sophie Ingle providing that kind of extra defensive, as you said, mopping up any issues um, and provides that little bit more solidity at the back, which is where we've seen Chelsea be, struggle a little bit this season. Um, so I thought she was fantastic. And Erin Cuthbert, when she did have Katie McCabe on her side, just had her in her pocket. Um, and we were kind of expecting a bit of a beefy battle between them two, but Katie McCabe couldn't get on the ball. So Erin Cuthbert definitely won that one. Yeah, it's actually interesting. Um, Rob was uh, asking us, tweeting us questions. Thanks to everyone who sent those in as well, actually. Uh, he was asking... Would Chelsea have won at the Emirates if Sophie Ingle had started? Um, I think that puts a huge amount on Sophie Ingle. Like, obviously, she's incredibly influential. But when you Last think season, about, she played a lot of games as like a backup centre back, and that that wasn't no, no that wasn't, wasn't great. great. <laughs> but I don't, I don't think that would have been. I don't think that would have been the case at the Emirates. I think um, Arsenal exploited uh, the wings. That was very much where they got a lot of their joy. Um, and because Chelsea were still kind of working out this back three, I'm not sure even Sophie Ingle in that position could, could have, have necessarily <laughs> prevented those those goals. Yeah. Um, I do think she is a great addition to them playing that back three now, just to give that extra defensive, uh, I guess, you know, comfort for them. Where do these teams go from here? Um, Sue sent in a question um, asking which team kind of would have benefited the most from winning this match. She thinks it was more important for Arsenal to win for their season. What do you think, Chloe? I agree. Um, I think it would have been a lot more to Arsenal, but I think it would have been slightly surprising had Arsenal. I think they were always going to this as slightly the the underdogs. Um, but I think obviously off the back of what Chelsea achieved last season, you know, one extra trophy is great, but to, to Arsenal that would have been a, a much bigger deal. Yeah, it's funny how coming into it, I I felt like people had really talked about Arsenal as the favourites. Really? Um, yeah. yeah, I've heard that too. Yeah, I really felt like because of the performance at the Emirates and, and, and the tone that it set for the season, even though lurking in the background, we knew that it wasn't a full-strength Chelsea side that day. Kerr and Kirby didn't start. Players come back from the Olympic Games. Arsenal had that lead-in with competitive Champions League qualifiers. We knew they were very different teams to the to the two teams that played at the Emirates. But still, it felt like Arsenal had this grasp over over Chelsea. And I think that's why perhaps it took people by by surprise. But now on reflection, you're like, you almost think, how silly were we to ever think that this is going to happen, you know? Yeah, because what, when I think back to some of the, the games Arsenal have played recently, you know, look at that Spurs game. Even when they played the likes of Kuya, um, those first half, both times when they played them, they struggled. They struggled to find solutions to good defensive play. Um, not that, you know, they still went on to win the games, but for me, that was a little bit of a niggle in the back of my head. I thought when they come up against really good teams, are they going to be able to find solutions on the pitch? Is that where they're going to struggle to kind of adapt to a team that's pushing them? Like Chelsea gave them zero time on the ball. Giannis mm-hmm. Eidevold touched on that in the post-match. And that's what's going to happen on Thursday. So I agree that this would have been much more important for Arsenal to win going into a game like Barcelona you know, obviously it's important for Chelsea, but for them, they haven't won anything for a while in terms of trophies, in terms of like keeping players at the club, all of that kind of thing going on in the background. I think it was really important for them to win that. And I, I worry for them now going in against Barcelona. Yeah, we're going to touch on the Champions League in a little bit. But I also want to know what you guys think, because I think the big question a few people ask me is, 
what happens now with the title race. There's still a lot of football to be played, and we we've already seen how you know Arsenal can drop points against teams like Spurs, and Chelsea will likely drop points again. But that game at, at Kings Meadow, that return fixture, I think it's in February, is huge and probably will be the title decider in terms of just how big the result will be. But what do you guys think? Has this given you any sort of idea of how this season's going to end? Um, it gives other teams areas to exploit uh, on the Arsenal team, I think. It kind of shows... But look, both teams are infallible. We've seen both teams play <laughs> some dodgy football, I think, this season. What I found out about Chelsea is when they don't play well, they still win the game. Um, and that is the kind of marking of champions, of teams that are, have been in that position before and know what to do. Um, so that's where I'm talking about Arsenal's kind of problem-solving that worries me slightly. I do... It's hard to call now. I think when we see the fixtures, the next few WSL fixtures for both teams, maybe we can see how this result will impact that. But I've, I'd struggle to call that now. I think Chelsea probably have the bit between their teeth now. And we, they are mentality monsters. So that will definitely drive them, I think. I agree. I think uh, Chelsea are sort of edging forward now. I think that, that was sort of a, a bit of a, a pinnacle moment, really. I mean, obviously, there's still so much of the season left to play. We've still got the gap in Christmas and that sometimes affects teams and, you know, players go out for a little bit and, it, you know, they come back in and completely different players sometimes. You do find that's quite difficult sort of two weeks to have off. But I think, you know, it's 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 going to be difficult now. I mean, Arsenal have got the Barcelona game, but then they do have the Leicester City game and that might be a chance to kind of get back a bit of composure, get back some what you hopefully think is going to be an easier set of three points to pick up. So you, you don't know, but I, I would say Chelsea look very strong and I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to call it. I'm probably going to say they're going to be winning the league. Is that an error? I don't know. You've been right about these things in the past. So. Yeah, I wouldn't say, it's, I wouldn't say it's too early. I, I've come away from that match on Sunday thinking, I don't know who can stop Chelsea now. Um, I think more, Chelsea. I think Chelsea can stop Chelsea. No, seriously, like, <laughs> We've seen them. They're their that, own worst enemy. Yeah, that Wolfsburg game at home. Where yeah, the, the, I think it's in, it's intriguing to see how poor Jess Carter has been this season by her own standards. We've seen her play a lot better, but she hasn't suited playing in this back three to then put in performance like she did that on Sunday half. in the in the FA Cup final. Oh so it, it's a case of can she play at this level every week in a back three? Was it just that Arsenal was so bad? And I don't mean that's a disrespect because that sounds like a massive disrespect, but she's still not massively comfortable in playing in that role. It's not her ideal position. So then you think, well, there are going to be other opportunities where, uh, you know, Chelsea are going to face a team and it could be Arsenal that play at a much better level than Arsenal did on Sunday. So we don't even know yet what this means because I think Arsenal were that bad. Yeah. It's hard to put it into context, but I do agree with you. I do think Chelsea have set down a marker of just being winners, they know how to win. Like you said, they're mentality monsters and perhaps that's just that cutting edge is missing from Jonas Adelvall's side at the moment. That's an indecent effort from distance. That's a very good effort. Erin Cuthbert. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So Sunday marked a hundred years since the FA banned women's football. Um, and to give the FA some credit, which is very rare for me to do, so I do want to do this. I think they got a good balance actually on Sunday um, of kind of celebration of history. Uh, of what came before, bringing out lots of old players um, and acknowledging the past and then celebrating and looking ahead to the future. And I thought the day itself was a really nice celebration of how entertaining women's football is, you know, how brilliant the players are and um, how big the crowd was as well, over 40,000 there. But it's interesting to have that on the backdrop of the 100-year anniversary. And the FA were very intentional in playing this game on the 5th of December. The The final was delayed because of COVID. They could have play, played it earlier. They probably still wouldn't have played it in the season it was meant to be. And that's, you know, something to talk about itself. But they could have played it earlier in this season, but decided to play it on the 5th of December, which I think is interesting to make a point of marking that day and not just ignoring it. But, there's still a lot of things that need to be said around this history because as people who are involved in women's football, sometimes I often like roll my eyes when people are always talking about the ban. But then I have to remind myself, just because you know this ban existed doesn't mean lots of people do. And actually exposing them to this information and saying women's football was literally banned for 50 years is really important. Yeah, context is key. And I've probably been similar to you in the kind of eye roll um, type of thing. But, you know, we see it a lot in women's football where the same stories are spoken about and people kind of maybe get a bit bored of it. But this one, you're so right, needs to constantly and regularly be talked about. And we can say, yeah, 100 years and, and you know, they lifted the ban in 1971. And people might look at that and say, oh, well, you've, you know, you've been going for any, you've been going a while now. Like, what are you complaining about? Like, no, like the effort didn't take over the the women's game until 1993 it only turned a fully professional league in 2018 like you cannot talk about the game the growth of the game 
without talking about the history. And I can't remember who said it, but like, you know, we're talk- we always talk about going forward in women's football and you can't do that without looking back on what's gone before, who has fought for this, who has gotten us to where we are now, like how we're getting 40 plus thousand at FA Cup finals because of all the people who've gone before. But yeah, without the context, you can't like you just can't talk about the future of the game without it. Do you I want to ask you, Chloe, do you like with players that you've played with, do players know about the ban? Do like do, like what's it like in the change room? Like uh, uh, for, for, for some of them, is this information still fresh? Absolutely. And I think especially for the younger players, especially coming up into the WSN, the championship, they don't know about the ban. It's not something that's really widely talked about amongst players. And I think we can't really stop talking about the ban until the impacts of it are still are not being felt. And I think that's going to be a, a, you know, a fair few decades before we actually start to see some kind of equality uh, in terms of, you know, things leveling off. And I think, you know, context is really, really important. I don't think there's enough history that's sort of that's been taught about the impact of what actually went down, because I think even when I was doing my own research, when I found out about the ban a few years ago, and that was new knowledge to me, and I was actually told that by a male colleague, and I was embarrassed that I, I was finding that out from someone who, who had never been playing at any kind of level. So, you know, I was sort of looking at the, you know, the history of what was happening during the, the 50 years that women weren't allowed to play football. And I think, you know, just giving you a timeline here of, you know, 1937, men's football was shown on TV for the first time. And then 1955, ITV start broadcasting games in Europe for the first time. 1964, Match of the Day is first aired. 1970, the FA Cup is the FA Cup finals broadcast. 1976, just after the ban has, has, has stopped, we've got the first kit sponsorship of an English club. So all these kind of you know the TV, the sponsorship deals, all the commercial revenue the men the men's side of things was gaining during that time. Women weren't even allowed to play. So you know, and we're still feeling the massive effects of not being able to to compete on the men's level with the kind of revenue that we bring in, and it was because of that ban so you know it was a massive occasion and credit to the FA for you know putting on you know and and not I mean I've not really seen an FA apology from it but at the same time you know credit to them for acknowledging it and making a big deal out of of this day because it's important for so many players who whose careers were affected you know the fan bases who kind of stopped the the community that that we had going um so it's um it's 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 sad I think sort of looking back over what's happened, but also positive that we're now sort of taking these steps and having these big games to, to show where we are today. I think the FA did do an apology quite a few years ago. Um, I tried to research this apology and it's uh, mysteriously disappeared from the website. <laughs> the website. I do remember that there was a, an apology. It was quite a few years ago. I want to maybe say like 2010, um, but I I think there was a, a sort of official apology from from the football association at some point. Um, and also obviously. You know, just because of the nature of history and the time we're living in, no one working at the FA now would have had a role to play in that. But it is really interesting to see the legacy of those sorts of decisions and the way they impact the game now. Because like you said, women's football is playing catch up. And I think it was really interesting. TalkSport did a sort of special feature documentary over the weekend and they played some of it during our FA Cup final coverage. And... um, Jean Williams, who are some of some of our listeners may know from Twitter, a massive academic in the space of, of women's football. And she was one of the people they interviewed. And she was talking about how, like, whenever you look at, whenever people talk about women's football and commercialisation, they always talk about the sport being in its infancy mm-hmm. and this sort of infantilization, which we know is a massive thing around women's sport, not just women's football. Um, but what's crazy about the ban on women's football is that the sport was huge entertainment. You know, there were record crowds going to watch teams during the 1920s, especially during the, the World Wars, because men weren't around. And this was massive entertainment, women's football. 
like 50,000 going to watch Dick Curl Ladies and, and things like that. So it's actually a sport that has so much rich, rich history and it's not in its infancy. It's just that it's playing catch up in a way. It had huge commercial value. If anything, you know, it was bigger than men's football at some points, but it just was forced to stop in so many ways or wasn't, you know, allowed to grow and evolve organically. People were having to sort of like secretly or unofficially play games, which is, you know, not the way it should be. And it's, it's interesting to think about that context. Yeah, and like some of the articles I've read over the last couple of weeks have been so, so interesting. Like they, you still had Dick Curl ladies in, you know, continuing to play during the ban, obviously not allowed on any league pitches or to have any official, you know, referees or anything like that. They went away to play in Canada and the FA reached out to the Canadian Federation and requested that they prevent them from playing like that's the levels that it went to it wasn't just like you can't play here you can't sit with us like they're actually going to go externally to other federations to try and encourage them to stop these teams playing which is just like so far so beyond your reach and outside of your kind of uh, remit I think it was it, it blew my mind a little bit so to see those people yes it was a ban but to see those pe- people who continue to play during that time to try and keep the game going is phenomenal and huge credit goes to them because it was because of people like that that got the ban lifted. It wasn't because the FA turned around and said, oh, let's stop being misogynistic. That wasn't what happened. It was because there was pressure put on them to get rid of this ban. Yeah, there are so many women who played such a big part as well. I mean, Patricia Gregory is someone that gets talked about a lot. There's a woman I interviewed or I interviewed about a couple of years ago. I think she's actually passed away now, but she played for the England women's team. She was a big part of the Women's Football Association and she like handcrafted and hand-designed a lot of the kits because they obviously didn't have sponsors. You know, she customised a lot of these things. Um, National Football Museum has a brilliant uh, collection of of objects and sort of artefacts and they actually have the original minute book um, so the sort of codified rules at the time, which have the first ever sentence where it says that football is unsuitable for women. Um, and you can see it in the National Football Museum in Manchester. It's a brilliant museum. I recommend everyone goes. Um, and I know they've got big plans for the for the Euros next summer. So I think it's brilliant that people are sort of acknowledging this, celebrating it, and celebrating the women that played such a part. Looking at where we are now... Um, what do you think has changed? There's obviously a lot of things that we can visibly see and point to and say, well, this is different. But do you think there's been enough progress? What is still, what still needs to be done? Um, I'll, I'll never think there's been enough progress, probably. Um, there's not enough investment. And I think, you know, people always talk about commercialization and how much money is being made from it. But the amount of money that went into, if we're going to keep comparing it to the men's game, that went into the men's game to get it to the point that it's at now, you know, so millions and millions would have gone into the men's game before a profit was made. But we don't, we're not afforded that same right because we're women. And that's what frustrates me. So that's been the biggest thing. There hasn't been enough investment um, because people want return because they're comparing it to the men's game and they're saying you're not bringing in as much viewership you're not bringing in as much money um, and if we keep comparing it to the men's game we'll never kind of achieve what we should achieve with it um, so that's probably my biggest frustration um, the game isn't diverse enough I think that's the other area that's been massively missed uh, and what this ban has massively impacted we would have a much more diverse range of, of women and girls playing football if there hadn't been a ban um, so there's lots of areas that uh, need to be looked at still. And yes, we can celebrate where we are, but there's still an awful long way to go. Yeah, no, definitely agree with that. And I think, 
it's also, it's a funny one with the comparison with the men's game because I think it's really important sometimes to make a point and we, we talked about the FA Cup and we can't not talk about the FA Cup without talking about the prize money difference. 25000 for the winner of the Women's FA Cup. $1.8 goes to the team for the winner of the Men's FA Cup. So in reality, financially, winning the Women's FA Cup is completely useless to Chelsea. It won't make any difference really to their budget, to their player budget. Uh, 850 quid for winning the first round. That's barely enough to pay your travel. So sometimes you've got to use the men's game comparisons to make a really important point. But I totally agree with you that why obsess over it all day long? Because it doesn't need to be compared to the, you know, women's football doesn't need to be compared to the men's game all the time. But it's almost useful in some ways to say this is the disparity. I think for me, my marker of how much has changed is having done a lot of, still, you know, I work a lot in men's football, cover a lot of men's football, always in, you know, men's football spaces. And I think the sheer number of men that are talking about women's football now or caring or watching games or going to games with the women's team, that's a massive marker for me. Obviously, them talking about football, women's football, doesn't necessarily impact a lot of people that much. Like, I don't think them talking about women's football is going to change the situation for Chloe as a player on the ground. But I do think in terms of perceptions, in terms of fan base, in terms of respect and entertainment value, it's certainly cutting through, you know, a friend of mine was on a train recently coming back from an Aston Villa men's game and they heard so many Aston Villa men's fans and other fans on that train going from sort of Birmingham to London talking about women's football, talking about their women's teams, whether it was West Ham fans, Aston Villa fans. One guy was watching the highlights from the Aston Villa women's game. It There is a massive you know, change in awareness and exposure and fandom and interest. But in reality... Does that change things that much for the players? Does that change things for the games that much? I don't really know. I think in terms of progress, sort of from my perception, what I've definitely seen is, is, a, is a massive increase in brands becoming involved in women's sport. Obviously, I think it, the more attention is getting, uh, the more fan base there is, the more you know that's going to drive profits and revenue and things like that. But you're starting to see you know really positive, genuine um, involvement from brands. You know, Barclays sponsoring the league. You've got you know, back in the day is Avon for the first, uh, the women's sponsorship of the Liverpool kit. And now you've got Miss Kick sponsoring Bristol City. And it's and it's brands that are just focused on on the women's game. And, you know, now we're starting to have obviously Sky involved, BT, um, the BBC. And, and that's massive, I think, because that's just been so influential in terms of the revenue. Because I, th- I think exactly what you were saying in terms of does that translate into, uh, you know, better uh, development, better progress for the players themselves? It... it, it Maybe it's too early to say. It's too early to say, but I just think in 2021, could things be better? 100%. Um, but I think obviously it's the it's the FA who banned women's football. It's not the clubs. And now the clubs are kind of picking up the pieces and they're the ones that now have to invest in their women's team because that progress wasn't made, you know, 50 years, 100 years previously. So, you know, you do have massive clubs, you know, the, the Man Cities, the Chelsea's, the Arsenal's who, who do seem to be on the face of it, at least, investing vast amounts of money in their women's teams, bringing in international players, having these amazing kits, the social media accounts, the fan bases. And and that's amazing. Um, but it, for, for some clubs, obviously, you've still got the Birmingham's, the Yeovil's who fell, you know, two seasons, three seasons ago, um, who are still massively struggling. And I think, you know, the investment is is great, but does it actually translate for the players? Not always. We're still having these fights for equality of resources and kits and, and things like that. So, no. And I think even the FA have a, a long way to go. I think you just touched briefly on, 
you know, the, 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 the prize money. I, I just don't see how you can justify 25K for the winning team and 1.8 mil for, for the winning men's team. I think that disparity is just a bit of a joke. Um, and, you know, even, you know, winning the, the FA Cup is not going to, in fact, you're going to be out of pocket for getting to the FA Cup because of all the travel and expenses that go with it. So, and even for teams sort of, we're going to the third round now of the FA Cup for, for this year. And we've got teams like Bridgewater, uh, we've got teams like Clapton FC who are now having to go onto, you know, crowdfunding websites just to get the money to travel down to these games. Otherwise they have to forfeit the fixture. So you think there's still so much more that the FA can be doing to really support you know, better engagement with, with the grassroots clubs, with the kind of semi-elite clubs and, and going up the ladder. So, no, I think there's so much more to be done. And also it's funny because the, the the Clapton fundraiser, through that I actually found out the the gate receipt structure in, in Women's FA Cup is completely different to the men's. You know, so much of the FA Cup fairy tale that we hear about as football fans is because if, you know, Rochdale draw Manchester United, Rochdale get a chunk of gate receipts depending on where the fixture is played and they'll they'll potentially make a lot of money from that game. Whereas that's not the same in the women's game. So even though Clapton had got a lot of fans to their away fixtures on this amazing journey they're having to get to the third round, they'd got hardly any of the gate receipts despite having a lot more fans than the home side. So I didn't know any of that until about a week ago. I didn't know any of that. And it's the same with the Conti Cup. I didn't actually know about the prize money situation in the Conti Cup. There is no prize money until the final. There's a prize money that gets split between the runner-up and the finalist. There's no prize money in the group stage, no prize money in the quarterfinals, no prize money in the semifinals. I didn't know that until two months ago when I wrote a piece about it because I hadn't been asking those questions as a journalist and we had all, all, all we'd just made, been making assumptions as fans as well about the way we would want things to go. But, you know, for lots of teams who are playing in the Conti Cup and it's been regionalised and, you know, that's for a whole nother day. But, like, they've got to do lots of travelling. They're not making any money back on that travelling. And uh, we, we, we just don't really talk about these things. We just don't really know about these things. And that's why it's so interesting kind of reflecting it and being like, yeah, I mean, we only just talked about Birmingham on this podcast and, and all the sort of carnage there with how the players are being treated. And it's interesting as all the cosmetic things of, People talking about the game, Sky and BBC showing live, you know, games on on national television. That makes the game more expensive, because and it, but it requires the clubs then to match that. Yeah. Because clubs are now like, oh, it's a bit much actually. It's a bit, it's a bit expensive to to back a, a professional women's team. It's like, yeah, but this is this is what you all wanted. We all wanted it to get to this point, but now you got to pay for it, guys. Yeah, and I think what's interesting, like I think it was Melanie Leopold who said it. We're not asking for the same... Pro- no one's saying give Chelsea women £1.8 million because they won the FA Cup. Like, we're not saying that. Exactly. We're saying a bit of parity here. Like, pay for clubs to be able to get two games. Give them enough funding that they can actually take part in these competitions. Because otherwise, you're just doing it like you're expecting them to do with their hands tied behind their backs. Like, it just... That's where we're, ta- where we're talking about equality. Equality to access. Equality to facilities. Um, and, you know funding so that teams can actually partake in the in the cup like that's people kind of when you talk about equal pay that's what gets thrown in your face you don't bring in enough money the game doesn't bring in enough money well maybe make make it fairer and and accessible for players to actually get to games get to fixtures get kind of the training facilities all of that kind of stuff and then we can start looking at the quality and how many people are watching it and all that kind of stuff but until that parity is there you know, don't throw equal pay in our faces because that's not what we're asking for. We're asking for fairness. 100%. And I think a prime example of that 
you know, we've just we've just drawn uh, Bridgewater FC uh, in the third round of the FA Cup, and we're going down there this weekend, and it's an away game because it travels about four or five hours or something, and. And whilst it's a little bit of an inconvenience, obviously having an overnight away game, we were thinking if it was the other way around, Bridgewater just wouldn't be able to afford the cost of coming up to, to Palace. They just wouldn't be able to afford the hotel, the coach. I mean, an away game costs a team around, I think it's about three or four thousand pounds with the hotel, the food, uh, the staff and everything that needs to go with it. So, you know, how, how can you possibly think that that's OK? I mean, even if they won that round, they'd only be getting a grand, I think it is. So they're just going to be, yeah, it's, it's uh there's still so much more to go. I just don't understand how they can justify those kind of levels still. So please, if you are part of a team, I mean, we've been talking a lot about Clapton and Bridgewater and I've, and I've, you know, we've all seen their stuff on social media and been sharing it as well and pe- a few players slid into my DMs and talked to me about their situation and fans as well. But if you want to share something, you know, send it to us, whether that's Football Ramble Presents or one of our, you know, individual accounts as well. Please do share because, like I said, there's so much that we still don't know about the situation that so many teams are going through. So if there's something that you want to shout about, please do share it with us. So, yeah, loads more football this week. It's just the calendar is mad at the moment. Um, We've got Chelsea Juve Wednesday night, Arsenal Barcelona Thursday night, WSL back this weekend, FA Cup this weekend. Rachel, where are you going to be? Uh, I'm doing both Champions League matches, so I'm very excited for them. Uh, and then I've got Reading Chelsea. Sorry, Reading. Uh, on Saturday, I've got, I think, Birmingham against, God, Manchester City. And then I think I've got Villa as well. There's a, there's quite a few I'm going to. Okay. I'll remember closer to the date, I hope. Yeah, I was going to say your diary, um, <laughs> your diary in your head doesn't quite no, work. Thank God you've got a diary on your phone. I can't think beyond Champions League right now. Yeah, but. no, it is, a bit of a, it is a bit of a mess. I'll be at the Champions League as well. Very excited for those games. You can watch them on YouTube for free, obviously. Um, and I'm going to be at Brighton, Manchester United on Sunday, which I'm very excited about because I haven't seen Brighton in the flesh this season. I feel like they're the team that, People are talking about, but also not talking about. And I'd quite like just to get like a full 90 minutes seeing them in person and be able to be like, right, you know, what's the difference? What are this side doing? Because I feel like no one quite knows or understands Brighton. They're a bit of an enigma. It's like, we know they're doing well, but no one really knows why. Um, and then sometimes they'll just like go and lose to Reading. Yeah, and you're that's like, what I was going to say. Yeah, they've had a weird season and they're still like up But it feels like table, that so. every, every single season they've been in the WSL, people are like, they're not going to get relegated, but I don't quite know what they're going to do. They might have a nice cup run, got semi-finals Keep last guessing. cup. So anyway, very excited for that. Um, Bridgewater. Yeah, road yeah. Just a nice four or five hour sort of cheeky weekend trip down to the coast. Um, yeah, FA Cup, which would be lovely to sort of get involved, get back involved with that, which I'm looking forward to. Um, yeah, and then I think I'll probably be watching the uh, the Arsenal-Leicester game as well um, afterwards, yeah. Love that. Yeah, bit of a top and a bottom of the table clash. Never know what's going to happen. Love that. Well, um, yeah, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening. If you've got any questions for us, please tweet us at Football Ramble. Me, at Floyd Tweet. Girls on the ball for Rachel and at Morgie underscore... Under- Don't say it. <laughs> Don't say at it. At Morgie underscore 89. 89. Uh, and also, yeah, 89. like I said, if you want to share anything with us, please do. Um, you know, we really want to shine a light on some of those stories. And we will see you all next week. Football Ramble Presents is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.